Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 23rd of Friday, 2023. We're all getting ready for the weekend. Many of us spend our weekends looking, gazing, walking, enjoying nature. We've done a number of shows on how we should or shouldn't think about nature, particularly other species over the years. One with the uh, naturalist, polemicist, Carl Safina, on what we can learn from other creatures. He believes we can learn humility. Uh, Jackie Higgins, another great naturalist, believe that when we look at animals, we can learn more about our own senses, learn who we are as a species. Ed Young, who was on the show, a very distinguished New Yorker journalist, uh, believes that looking at animals help us develop empathy. Uh, they've all been thinking very broadly about animals and uh, what we can learn as humans, but we've done shows also on what we can learn from the birds. Cy Montgomery, great writer, believes in her new book on hawks that... Um, we can learn much about fierce beauty, uh, a different way of loving. And another guest we had uh, recently, Priyanka Kumar, believes that we can read nature, that uh, if we indeed read nature, especially birds, it allows us to transcend herself. She has a lovely new book out, Conversations with Birds. My guest today uh, is also a birder. Many of you will be very familiar with him. He became a, an instant... Um, unintentional celebrity uh, in uh, Central Park a few years ago. He's Christian Cooper. He doesn't need much of an introduction, but he has a new book out. The first book is already on the New York Times bestseller. It uh, only came out last week. It's on birding, better living through birding, but it also is a book about being uh, a black man in the natural world. Uh, the subtitle of the book is Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. And I'm thrilled and honored that Christian is joining us. Not Christian from Central Park. You are the Central Park guy, aren't you? I, I, I am one of many Central Park birders. But yes, uh, that is my stomping ground. So as I said, Christian, uh, in the introduction, um, we've done a lot of conversations about what we as humans can learn from nature about ourselves, particularly birds. You're Subtitle is Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World, not Notes from a Man. Why the black man bit? Well, I mean, primarily because the book is a memoir. It's my personal story, um, but infused with what has been very important in my whole life since the age of nine or 10, which is birding and birds. And so there are a lot of connections and parallels to be drawn. Um, why black men in particular? Well, because Blackbirders are, unfortunately, still rather rare. Um, when I was young, we were super rare, um, but things have gotten better. But being black and a birder carries particular challenges, issues, perspectives. Um, I think probably the person who's articulated it the longest is, is Professor uh, Drew Lanham from Clemson University. And he's sort of articulated the soul of the black birder for a long time. One of the things he put out was sort of like nine rules for the black birder. And one of them being never, never, ever go birding in a hoodie because mm. people will think you're out there stalking for no good just because you're black and in a hoodie. 
Um, so there are particular things that uh, come up when you're a black birder. And that's one of the things, several things. Also being queer and how birding uh, helped me uh, get through the closet um, because I knew I was queer from like the age of five. So a lot of, you know, personal collisions with birding and how birding helped open me up to certain things. Yeah, it's funny that, um, as you know, uh, you're also uh, gay or what you say queer. We, we did a show yesterday, actually, with the, uh, the writer uh, James Kerchick. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with his history of gay in Washington, D.C., uh, he believes that uh, the, the term queer is problematic. Perhaps we'll, we'll come to that later. But you are almost doubly or triply an outsider as a birder, as a black man, as a gay man. In terms of birding, Christian, is there a, uh, a means and an end? Do you think that birding... Um, did birding underline, reflect, help you with being an outsider? Or was it a way for you to... To, to find another world where you weren't an outsider? No, it was interesting. It, uh, I would say that particularly now as it relates to being queer or gay, whichever term you prefer. Um, Which do you prefer? I use both interchangeably. I prefer queer to LGBTQIA+. I, I just, I can't with the alphabet here. So yeah. I, I, rather than, than doing that really awkward, ugly string of, of, of letters, I use queer, meaning anyone with a different uh, sense of sexual identity, sexual orientation, gender identity, I'll just use queer if I can. Um, but, you know, I'm also perfectly comfortable with gay. Um, in fact, I probably use gay more than queer. I'll use queer more to talk about the movement. Either way. But as a gay person, um, I found that as a closeted gay person, getting outside and focusing on finding birds, because you have to focus. You've got to be paying attention, looking for movement, listening for sounds. And when you do that, it gets you outside of yourself and it puts you into a larger world and your, your personal issues and problems, your myopic problems become a lot smaller and disappear for a little while. And you get to be absorbed into this larger world and understand how you're part of that world. Um, so yes, going outside, looking for birds, that got me outside of myself. Um, and I think that was very, very important for me at that stage of my life, still is. Tell me about birds, Christian. What's so exciting about them? What, what makes you and others such keen birders? What, what is so fascinating? As I said, uh, we've done lots of shows on it. You don't probably need to convince me, but you may need to convince others that they should dedicate parts of their lives to watching, observing birds. All right. Well, start with the fact that when you look at a bird, you're looking at a living, breathing dinosaur. I mean, it, they are the only dinosaurs that survived the mass extinction. Um, that alone makes them super cool. I mean, if you're like me, and, and I think most kids grew up with the fascination with dinosaurs, the fact that they're still around and we can look out our window and see them is astonishing. So when you look at a pigeon or you look at a hummingbird, you are actually looking at the closest living relative to a Tyrannosaurus rex because they are actually in the same family of birds, uh, same family of dinosaurs, all birds are, as Tyrannosaurus rex. So start with that. But one of the other things is that 
you know, you look at our dogs and our cats, our pets. Sure, we, we, we love them, we empathize with them, but their primary sense is their nose, their sense of smell. We rely primarily on our sight and then our sound, uh, our hearing, our, our ability to see and our hearing. Birds use the same two primary senses. So they communicate with a range of colors, with, inc with incredibly bold patterns, with amazing sounds, and especially in the songbirds, amazing vocalizations. These are all things that we are uniquely suited to appreciate because we have those same primary senses. So we can enjoy the birds in a way that we can't enjoy our, our dog or our cat. Um, but then ultimately, I think, there's the romance. Birds fly. And that freedom, the ultimate freedom to be able to move in any direction at will, to be limited by nothing more than the sky in terms of where you can go. That ultimate freedom is so symbolic for us, is, is something we all aspire to. We have dreams of flying ourselves. And so to look up and see birds do that, you can't beat it. It, 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 it elevates you. It, it, it makes your spirit soar. And perhaps, Christian, that's where the notes from a black man come in, because, of course, nobody appreciates, understands, and yearns for freedom uh, as much as black Americans, given their history. We, we did um, a show uh, with uh, uh, Matt Clavin, an interesting book, um, Symbols of Freedom, Slavery and Resistance Before the Civil War, in which he suggested that black Americans, even when they were enslaved, appreciated the symbols of freedom of the American Republic as much, if not more, than white people. Uh, who, who, of course, weren't enslaved. What about this, this freedom issue and birding for you as a Black American? Oh, absolutely. I mean, as, as African Americans, we don't take it for granted. We fought long and hard for our freedom. We are still fighting long and hard for our freedom. So um, what that means is that we appreciate it more. And I, and I think that means that that's one reason why we should be tuned into birds more than anybody else. Um, and then there are also some very specific parallels between, and this sounds odd to say, but between elements of the black experience and between birds. And uh, a good example of that is um, uh, 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 migration. You know, uh, uh, the great migration of African-Americans out of the South into areas in the North. Um, that was because you know, there was opportunity with industrialization sudden, suddenly in the northern states. So, you know, my ancestors left and came north and to raise their, their kids in a better environment. Birds do the same thing every year seasonally. They migrate from the south back up to the north in the springtime so that in the summer abundance of bugs and fruits and flowers that's only seasonally available, they can take uh, advantage of that and have a better opportunity to raise their young, a better chance that their young will do better and survive. We even use the same term for it, great migration, you know, this, the migration of birds, because it's the same motivation, it's the same reason. So that's, those kinds of parallels I find particularly interesting. Yeah, I wonder, you mentioned that we share with birds a love of music. Uh, the great French composer Olivier Messiaen famously said that, uh, Birds are the greatest musicians on the planet. Uh, uh, I think many people believe that African-Americans are the, the greatest musicians in, in the American tradition. 
is there this yearning for freedom, this manifestation, this conversation about freedom, which one, of course, can find in African-American music? Is that, do you think, um, also reflected, articulated in birdsong? The birds, the noises they make, is it the noise of freedom, Christian? That's interesting. I never thought of it as the noise of freedom. I just thought of it as the noise of beauty. Or um, yearning for freedom or, or appreciating a, sort of a, a hymn, if you like, to freedom. Never thought of it that right way. And let me tell you why. Because there, there are very specific reasons uh, uh, scientifically that birds make their sounds. You know, they're trying to attract a mate. They're trying to establish their territory. Um, you know, they, they're in some ways setting up sonic fences since they can't build fences because they don't have hands. They fly from perch to perch to perch and sing at each of these perches and that kind of defines the boundary of their territory. So there's some very specific reasons why birds sing and maybe my head is too science-minded to think of it in, in those kind of elegiac terms of, of birds are singing for freedom. What you will find is, and this is a, a story that horrifies me, I have heard of birds being captured and caged so that they will sing mournfully and bring other birds to them. And that to me is an abrogation of everything that a bird is about, everything that we should love about birds, which is that ability to go anywhere at will, that freedom, which is why I, I can't abide caged birds. I, I, I don't like it. Uh, and I think you might as well, you know, take Picasso and blind him or take, you know, Chopin, cut off his hands. Um, that's what you're doing when you cage a bird. So in that sense, you know, perhaps you can think of birds singing as, as an expression of freedom. Uh, they may or may not be the greatest musicians on the planet, but do they talk birds? Do they, are they able to converse with each other? I mean, w w what are the noises they make? Is, there, is it a form of communication? Of course, you became, as I said, unintentionally famous on Twitter. The, the irony is self-evident um, uh, that the, the tweets made or unmade, Christian Cooper, depending how you want to make it, you already made. Um, but um, I, I'm curious, sometimes when one hears birdsong, one thinks, I guess, as humans that they're speaking to one another, but who knows? Oh, a thousand percent are they communicating with each other. Now, can you call it language? Most cases, probably not. Um, and I say most cases because there's the example of the common raven, who those birds are somewhere between dog smart and chimpanzee smart. Um, they are brilliant birds. So we're never quite sure um, how much they're communicating. They certainly recognize individual people's faces. Um, so that's how smart they are. Um, but birds communicate all kinds of things. For example, when a bird is singing, it is typically saying, I'm a black-throated blue warbler. My name is Bob. And if you're a female black-throated blue warbler, come on over, baby. And if you're another male, get the hell off my lawn. And that's what they're saying when they're singing, all of that. Um, on the other hand, they, uh, most birds also have a very short note besides the song. They have a call note. And the call note is kind of like, yo, hey, it's a way of them of keeping contact with each other, uh, keeping contact with other birds. And sometimes they communicate across species lines because they have alarm calls, birds, that are typically short and sharp and all the other birds recognize them. So for example, if there's a hawk that shows up in the area, the blue jays will send up alarm calls and the other birds will send up alarm calls. And all those sounds are being understood 
across species and they'll all come together to gang up on the much larger dangerous predator who has arrived in the neighborhood to try to harass them to get them to go. So yeah, birds definitely communicate and communicate quite a lot. One more, one more story about communication. This is fascinating to me. There's a bird called the black-capped chickadee. Everybody loves chickadees. They're adorable. But their call, their name comes from their call. Chickadee-dee-dee, chickadee-dee-dee. The DDD at the end changes depending on the threat level. So if a person was walking through the woods past a chickadee and chickadee might go, chickadee-dee, because we're not much of a threat. We're too big. We're not interested. If, however, there's a saw-wet owl, which is a little owl that would love to make a lunch out of a chickadee, the chickadees go, chickadee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. The number of Ds communicates the threat level. In a way, then, this uh, famous or infamous uh, experience you had in Central Park with another Cooper, the white woman Cooper, um, and the way in which your sister responded was rather bird-like on Twitter, wasn't it? <laughs> I guess you could say that was my sister. My sister going, -dee 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 -dee. Um, and people yeah. responded. I mean, it, it's you couldn't make. I mean, you couldn't. Your whole story, Christian. I mean, obviously, there's a bigger story which is focused on on the book. But this whole Central Park story, you couldn't really make up. It's so bizarre, isn't it? It was actually not as bizarre as you might think, and that I think is what made it relevant um, because we African-Americans know from our experience that things like this happen. Um, they may not happen all the time. They may not happen to that extent and they may not be captured on camera, but they happen. And in, on some level, they happen on an almost daily basis. You know, you go out to hail a cab and the cab doesn't stop because your skin is brown. Um, you go into a store and, you know, the store owner follows you because they think you're going to shoplift because your skin is brown. Um, you know, you go into a park and a white woman tries to weaponize her whiteness uh, to get the police to come down on you with special vengeance. You know, these are all things, different aspects of racial bias that are really sort of deeply embedded in American culture that we African-Americans know and have been dealing with our whole existence. But I think it was a revelation to a lot of people that this happens. They weren't aware of it, hadn't thought about it, and to actually see it on camera, let alone on the same day that that racial, racial bias led a police officer to kneel on the neck of George Floyd until he was dead in Minneapolis. I think that brought the point home to a lot of people. Yeah, you you were thrust into history. I mean, your association with Black Lives Matter and, and, and the Floyd murder is, 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 again, remarkable. What was it like feeling that you were, again, uh, unintentionally thrust uh, onto the historical stage? It was disorienting, um, you know, to have my phone chime with the usual New York Times update alert and to look at it and it was about me. That was strange um, to come home and have to duck into my apartment building because a certain New York rag has sent a photographer to try to snap photos of me as I enter my building. And I've got to duck in like I'm Princess Di dodging the paparazzi. That was weird. Um, you know, so it, it was it was a strange dislocation. But ultimately, you know, my attitude was, look, if you're going to stick these microphones and these cameras in my face, I'm going to use them to say what I think needs to be said. 
and that was about racial bias um, and how it permeates our society and how we need to do our part to root it out. And now I get to use that, those microphones and those cameras to talk about birds and how important it is that we protect them and save them and, and prevent the worst of climate change from affecting not only them, but also us. One of the things that struck me, just as, as, as like everybody else watching what unfolded in, 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 in your incident, was your graciousness, almost a willingness, if not to forgive, certainly not to be too angry. Um, I wonder whether that's a, a kind of a white response, whether white people like a, a, a Christian Cooper who isn't too angry, a Harvard-educated black man who seems so civil and civilized even to a woman who accused him, something, who, who made up lies about him and may have endangered his life. Does that graciousness, I mean, is that fair? And is, is graciousness in that sense, is it a quality or might some people actually be a little bit critical? Oh, I know some some black people were definitely um, disappointed. Let's put it that way, um, that I did not want to take an active part in her prosecution. Um, and let's be clear, um, whether or not to prosecute was never up to me. It was up to the DA. Um, so that was their call. Um, but, you know, I chose not to actively participate. If they had subpoenaed me, I would have gotten involved. Where does that impulse come from? a lot of different places. And it was a very hard call as to whether or not I would participate in the prosecution. Um, I was really right on the line. Um, but as far as it being gracious, it's more a matter of keeping your eyes on the prize. And the prize is, look, it's not about this one person. It's really easy to put it all on this one person and say, oh, look what they did. That's so horrible. She's a terrible person. Guess what? Look in the mirror. Because you have a lot of the same responses and you maybe aren't conscious of it. And that's what we need to focus on. You know, if you are offended by what she did, all right, well, then be doubly, triply offended by the fact that a place like Washington, D.C., which is largely a black and brown city of over 600,000 people, doesn't have any representation, whereas all white rural Wyoming with fewer people and all white rural Vermont with fewer people has two senators each. In the, in the US Senate, whereas the black and brown city of Washington DC gets nothing. That's a manifestation of bias that we should be focused on. That's a manifestation of bias that we can do something about. So, you know, call it graciousness, call it whatever you want, but let's keep our eye on the prize. Let's focus on fixing the things we can fix. It's a memoir, Christian, uh, Better Living Through Birding. You write a lot about your parents, your sister, your upbringing. Uh, that, and it's my word, not yours, but that, that, that grace is something that you seem to have inherited from your family. Uh, perhaps you might say something about that. I mean, how, how did you learn to become Christian Cooper? What did your parents and, and your sort of troubling relationship, I guess, in some ways with your father, what did it teach you or unteach you? Um, well, it's, it, that's very interesting. Yeah, I, I would say uh, there are three things, three people I've learned from, and that is my maternal grand, grandmother, uh, my mother, and my father. Um, if you want to say there's some grace in me, it, it probably didn't come much of it from my father. <laughs> my father was a fire-breathing dragon and a pit bull who would not let anything go. Um, uh, whereas my mother was, was rather different. My mother was, was much more 
empathetic and uh, more emotions forward, I think I kind of rebel against them both a little bit or the extremes uh, of their two approaches and, and maybe try to choose somewhere down the middle. Um, and then my grandmother, Justin, being a force of nature who, who shaped uh, the whole family um, is, is a big factor. So yeah, family, uh, just like anybody else, family is going to shape you and, and steer you. And I, I try to hew to the best of what my, my parents and, and my grandmother bequeathed me. And certainly one of the best things um, my, both my parents bequeathed to me was that activist streak, that determination to make a difference, to do something. You don't get a pass. You don't get to say, oh, there's nothing I can do about this. No, if you see something wrong with the world, it is your moral obligation to do something to try to fix it. And that's the thing they gave me most of all. Christian, I've been rereading uh, Susan Sontag's book on photography in which she's rather critical of how we want to photograph everything in the world. When you bird, do you have a camera? I know you've got binoculars. What are your thoughts on capturing na nature, capturing birds? I mean, of course, uh, I, I, we take it for granted that you're not in favor of, of literally shooting the birds. Uh, but, but what do you think of our obsession with photography and photographing nature? Is it almost a, an, an implicitly guilty sense that we're destroying the world around us, so we want to capture it? I don't think anybody's thought it through that far um, in terms of thinking we're destroying things, so let's get it while we can. I think it's more um, symptomatic of our um, Instagram culture. Um, if there's no photo of it, did it happen? Um, everybody's different. I personally, I am not a person who photographs birds. Um, I prefer to be in the moment and in the experience, um, but I'm old school. I'm 60 years old. Um, you know, I've been birding since I was nine or 10 years old. So that's the way I bird. Um, the new generation of birders can be somewhat different. Um, some of them are totally tied into the camera. In fact, they've dispensed entirely with binoculars and replaced it with a camera. That's a different way to bird than I bird, but it has its pluses and its minuses. Yeah, you're no longer in the moment, maybe, when you're experiencing the bird. But on the other hand, you've got these wonderful memories preserved. And if you're learning, you can take a lot of pictures of the bird and then go home and sort through those pictures to figure out what it is you've seen um, and do better identifications. So, you know, there's pluses and minuses. I don't, I don't malign anybody who birds differently than I do with a camera. The only time I get upset is if they take a lot of photos of a lot of different birds and rather than going home and doing their homework and trying to figure out what they are themselves, they come up, come up to you in the park and they're like, what's this? What's this? What's this? Tell me what this is. Tell me what this is. No, not doing that. Uh, as I said, the subtitle of the book is Notes from a Black Man in the Natural World. The natural world, according to many naturalists who've been on the show, is in crisis. What, 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 are, what are your thoughts as a birder, Christian? I, do you see it up front in terms of global warming, in terms of the destruction of species, in terms of the crisis of, of all species because of, because of our planetary crisis? 1,000% I see it. Um, again, I've been birding for half a century. So I have seen personally the decline in the bird populations in North America, which from the time I start, started birding as a kid to now we have lost nearly a third of the numbers of birds that we had before. Um, that 
is remarkable in one person's lifetime. And if you go before that, there are birders, you know, old timers in the park who are gone now, but I used to run into them and I'd say, oh my goodness, we're having such a wonderful day. So many birds today. And they would look at me and they'd say, you have no idea. And now the same thing is happening to me. Uh, new birders, pandemic birders come up to me and they're like, oh my God, we're having such a wonderful day. There's so many birds. And I look at them, I'm like, you have no idea what it used to be like, do you? And so we have lost so much. Uh, so many birds are just gone. Um, and in terms of uh, evidence of global warming, birds are a great indicator because a great example is the red-bellied woodpecker. When I was a kid, I never saw one until we went to the Carolinas um, because that's where their range is, down south. Now they breed all over Central Park. They breed up the Hudson Valley. I believe they breed as far north as Maine now. And so many southern, previously southern exclusives, exclusively southern birds have been able to extend their range because of global warming. Now you may think that's a good thing and maybe in some ways it is, but what it means is that some of the other birds are being edged out, pushed out, restricted. They're not gonna have any place to go anymore. So that's, that's, that's a problem. We see it. It is physically evident to us as birders what changes we're going through. Christian, uh, I guess June is in a way, it's, it's, it's Christian Cooper month. It's Pride month where I am in San Francisco, but lots of parties at the weekend. It's also the month of Juneteenth. Do you think we need in America a bird day, a national bird day where everyone goes out and watches and sees the birds and recognizes the, the, the crisis of these other species? Might that be helpful? Well, we have the beginnings of that now. I mean, in that there is uh, there are things like the Christmas bird count um, where people go out and, and count birds uh, right around Christmas time. We have things like uh, American uh, Migratory Bird Day. Um, and then there's Black Birders Week, which... You know, oh, there is. When's that? I didn't know about that. When's that? Oh, Black Birders Week is last week of May, first week of June. Depends. It changes a little bit each year. But that, that was a direct response to the incident with me in Central Park. And a bunch of, of Black scientists got together and said, hey, you know what? We should put together a week where we are highlighting the fact that black people are out there in the sciences, in the field, trying to enjoy all kinds of outdoor recreation, including birding, but especially birding. And so they put together Black Birders Week and that's been going strong for three years now. So um, we have the beginnings of those things now. If you ask me, every day should be a birding day because you can bird every day without really any special effort. Just walk out your door, and be aware, you know, have your eyes and your ears open and you will always find a bird and some bird activity and some, some bird behavior to observe. And for newbies, I know you're a big fan of the Peterson Guide. Uh, what other books in addition to yours should people get hold of if they want an, an introduction, if they don't know as much about you uh, as you about the, the natural world about birds? Yes, definitely read Better Living Through Birding. It's not a bird book. It's not a bird book, but it's got birding tips in it, yes. Um, Did I mention it was a New York Times bestseller, Chris? Yeah, I think you did. (laughs) Um, But um, one of the things that you can do is there are are two apps that are really quite useful. One is eBird. Um, They're both from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, which is the the ultimate leader in bird studies. 
Um, and full disclosure, I happen to be on, on their administrative board at the moment. So, but that doesn't change the fact because if you ask any birder, they will tell you the same thing. There's an app called an eBird. There's an app called eBird, excuse me, um, that you can put on your phone and that you can use to add your own listings of what birds you've seen and the numbers of them that you've seen. And then that data goes to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and they can use it to learn more about how bird populations are shifting around the country. And then you can also consult eBird and see, oh, just yesterday, somebody saw a cinnamon teal in this area. I should go look for it. So it's very useful in that regard. The other app you need to have, also from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, is called Merlin. And it'll help you with bird ID. Um, one of the most useful features is you can set it to sounds and you can hold it out your window and it will analyze the bird sounds and tell you what birds are in your area based on what sounds it picks up. That's amazing. That's, that's, you want to talk about AI and AI tools learning. This is an amazing AI tool that keeps getting better and better. It's not perfect, but it, it will, it's a great way to learn what birds are in your area. Final question, uh, Christian. Maybe your next book can be on AI and birding. Um, uh, as, as is obvious, uh, you became a national, international celebrity almost after uh, the Central Park incident. Uh, as we speak, I think this week, the other Cooper woman uh, lost her employment appeal. She's been humiliated. Uh, one wonders whether she needs to change her name, her face, to have a, a regular life. Whereas you've gone from Strength to strength, you have uh, a National Geographic show, Extraordinary Birder with Christian Cooper. You've got the new book out, which is a New York Times bestseller. You're even on Keen On. Um, does that suggest to us that Martin Luther King's argument about the arc of justice tending towards, um, tending towards optimism, does all this this outcome of what happened in, 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 in Central Park, in an odd way, does it make you more of an American, more optimistic, more believing that the good rather than the bad wins in the long run in history? Or is it just a blip? No, I'd, I would not draw from what the outcome of my experience a larger conclusion that, you know, what Martin Luther King Jr. suggested that the arc of of history bends towards justice. It bends towards justice if we bend it that way. We as individuals have to do our part to make it bend. Um, I don't think what happened to me is any indication of, of a more just world any more than uh, President Obama winning the election and becoming president was an indication that racism is, is over. It's not. Um, it, it is still very much with us. So what would tell me that, that we're bending that arc. And again, it is something we've got to do ourselves is if, for example, if Washington DC became a state so that that black and brown city had just as much representation as Wyoming or Vermont, what would tell me that we are bending the, the arc of justice uh, 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 or the, the arc of history towards justice is if we found ways to make sure that policing and the criminal justice system treated black people just the same way as it treats white people. And if you have any doubt that that's not the case, look at what happened on January 6th and how that almost exclusively white crowd, with one exception, all went home 
at the end of that day and only now are being brought before the criminal justice system. So, yeah, we got a lot of work to do and it's not done yet. But, you know, if we all put the effort in, we can make that arc of history bend towards justice. 